my title for this morning's sermon is A New and Living Way. A New and Living Way. And we're going to concentrate our minds upon Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 to 21. Having therefore, brethren, Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. The epistle of Hebrews is unique in calling the Lord Jesus Christ a priest. It's implied in Paul's epistles and uh, Peter's as well, and John's. But it's only in Hebrews, and of course we don't know who wrote Hebrews, that the Lord Jesus is referred to explicitly as a priest or as a high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ himself never called himself a priest, although he says... To his disciples, when he established a new covenant, these words, as he passed the wine, the cup around the Passover table, he said, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So he presents himself as the sacrifice which establishes the new covenant. We should always remember when we hold our Bibles as the Old and the New Testaments, but the Old and New Testaments don't actually fit into that division. The Old Testament continued some way into the Gospels, and probably we can say the beginning of the New Covenant was when the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the new covenant when he shared that bread and wine with his disciples. So Paul does not call Christ a priest. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't. But he is spoken of in, in scripture elsewhere as the sacrifice, the mercy seat, which was that slab of gold on which the two cherubim were placed, not really placed, they were built into from from in the Holy of Holies. The scripture talks of Christ as giving himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. But it's only in Hebrews that Christ is referred to as priest or high priest. It seems to be when the tribe of Levi is referred to, Jesus is called a priest, but when Aaron or one of his sons is referred to, he is called high priest. So the first thing we need to establish is what is a priest? Of course, we, we think of a priest today as a man with a dog collar who um, opens fates and... Um, Hands out prizes of school and generally is a beacon of the community. 
But the Old Testament meaning of a priest was one who brought the people near to God. In the Old Testament there were prophets and there were priests. And the way to think of that is that the prophet moved from God with a message to the people. Whereas the priest moved from man with sacrifices to God. And so we have it both ways, you see. Hebrews 5 verse 1 gives the idea of what a priest is. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Therefore a priest, dear friends, was a man ordained by God who brought men near to God, who led them into the presence of God. And the way this worked was very remarkable. You see, such was the connection that the priest or the high priest had between himself and the believers, the people of God, that when the priest made contact with God, at the same time, a contact was made between God and the people. The contact that the priest made with God was passed on to the people, like almost like an electric current through a wire. And in that way, he brings, he draws the people of God to God. So spiritually speaking, they came, the people came, where the priest had gone. He draws the believers after himself. That's what a priest did. It was such a responsible and holy position. And not anyone could do it, only those who were from the right tribe, ordained by God. So why did, is it important to understand that? It's important to understand that because the Christian gospel, the Christian message, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, through becoming a man like one of us, has been ordained by God as the high priest to offer the supreme sacrifice of himself to God. And therefore, he has brought us to God. He has led us back into the presence of God because he is acting as a priest. And that is the function of the priest. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. Amazingly good news, isn't it? And this is made even clearer by the analogy from the Old Testament in the verses that we have this morning, verses 19 to 20, <clears throat> to 21. Because here, in these verses, the Holy Spirit compares the ministry of Christ with the Old Testament's high priest ministry at the annual Day of Atonement. 
We know that he's referring, the Watu, whoever it is. We know that he's referring to the high priest, which is Aaron, or one of Aaron's children, because of the reference to entrance into the holiest place in verse 19. And also there is reference to the veil or the curtain in verse 20. And it was only the high priest who had any business or permission to work within the holy of holies. The most holy place was the innermost section of the sanctuary of God. You remember the tabernacle and the temple was the same. It was divided into three sections. So as you came through the outer tent, you would come into the court and you would be met with the bronze altar. That would be the first thing you saw where you had to make your sacrifice. And then you would move on a little further and you would come to the bronze basin where you would be washed, symbolic of baptism. And that's where most of the activity took place, where the general people of God would be. They would go no further. The next section was the holy place. This is where the Levites would work, the priests. And there you had the golden lampstand, the table with the bread of the presence and the altar of incense. All deeply symbolic, of course, which we won't go into today. But then the third section was the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, only one person was allowed, and that was the high priest, who had to be from the family of Aaron. And in its first iteration, the most holy place. that holy place within that tent, that tabernacle in the wilderness, was a cube of 15 feet, and it was divided from the holy place, the second section, by a curtain, by a very thick and amazing curtain, upon which, upon which were embroidered embroidered figures of cherubims. Cherubims are one of the ranks of God's angels. In the temple of Solomon, which replaced the mobile sanctuary of God, the size of the most holy place doubled from 15 feet cube to 30 feet cube. And like its predecessor, the tabernacle, it contained the Ark of the Covenant. But a new feature was added. Two large figures of cherubim, of, made of olive wood, with wings stretching from wall to wall, beneath which the Ark of the Covenant was placed. Of course, there was a third temple, a second temple rather, What's known as Herod's Temple, 
the final temple. And there the holiest place was empty. The ark was lost sometime in the 6th century. But it was still seen as the most holy place. And it was separated, as I say, even Herod's temple was separated by a huge curtain with huge figures of cherubim embroidered into it. Jewish tradition and the Talmud, which is a kind of theology book that goes alongside the Torah. It says that the curtain of Herod's temple was 60 foot long, 30 foot high, and 4 inches thick. That's a curtain, isn't it? And it says that it took 300 priests to hang this curtain. And this veil or curtain was emblazoned with cherubim. And you know that curtain sent out a very clear message. It preached a very clear sermon. It said to the people, mainly to the other Levites, because the people would never have got that far. It says no entry. We're familiar with no entry. Trespasses keep out one way. No entrance. We see them. These signs wherever we go. But this was God's no entry sign. Thus far and no further, God says. You see, within the Holy of Holies, that holiest place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which itself had two golden cherubims, angels, facing on, on top of the lid, on top of the mercy seat, facing each other, and in fact not face, facing each other in terms of their eye contact, because their, their eyes were looking down. But they faced towards each other and the tips of their wings touched and they were looking on top of the mercy seat. And it was here, precisely there and nowhere else, that God's presence would come down and dwell in a cloud, what's called a theophany, which we, we thought about a bit last Tuesday. A visible representation of God's presence in the form of a cloud, a divine visible appearance. And that's where God dwelt with his people. That was God's presence. Hezekiah began his prayer in Isaiah 37 by saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. So that's where God met his people. But in front of that place where this, was this thick curtain. And the message that the, these, this curtain, these cherubim sent out was no entry to the presence of God. No access to the presence of God. Dear friends, the message of the Bible is very clear that sinful man 
is excluded from the presence of God. And that we have no right of access into his presence. This is the terrible condition of man. This is the great tragedy of human history and of our own individual lives outside of Christ. Tragic, why? Because originally, man's original state of being is described in the Bible, the first book of the Bible, as an uninterrupted and blissful relationship with God. Where man and God were in a covenant of love where they drew mutual pleasure and delight in each other's company. God loved man so much that he wanted man to have even more, to advance from that state of bliss to a permanent state of blessedness and glorification where it would be impossible for man to ever fall. And he, he, gave, he set up a covenant of works with a particular test that man should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that if he passed that probation, that test, he would enter in permanently to the Sabbath rest with God. Yet man, deceived by Satan, broke covenant with God. And one of the many terrible consequences of that was that man is banished Man is in exile from the garden of the Lord. Access is blocked to the way of the tree of life. That fruit which would sacramentally give eternal life. And therefore we read earlier in the service these words from Genesis 3, 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. The way to the tree of life is blocked by cherubim and a flaming sword. Man is barred from eternal life. God could have destroyed the tree of life, of course, but he chose to guard it instead. And that brings us hope, doesn't it? Because surely that must mean, and we know from the rest of Scripture that it means that God still intends his people to eat of the tree of life one day. But God is also saying that access is barred until a man, and it has to be a man, fully and perfectly obeys my law, God's law, until the covenant of works is fulfilled then access to the tree will be granted. Secondly, he's saying that access to the tree of life will only be through fiery judgment, symbolised through the flashing sword. Sin has to be punished, in other words. 
A judgment has to be made. A man, you and I, outside of Christ, now defiled by sin, is driven out of God's land into a wilderness under the shadow of the darkness and death. And those first humans who were literally the priests of Eden, Adam was a king and a priest and a prophet to his wife Eve, are now treated as potential intruders. And the cherubim, these angels, stand like God's security guards, barring access to his presence and to eternal life. Now this, this is the thing, dear friends, I want you to understand, you would have made a connection already. These same cherubims were embroidered into the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place, the place where God's presence could be found. These cherubims which guard and bar and say no further are pictured on the curtain, right in front of that place where God dwells with his people. This is the Bible's analysis and description of every one of us outside of Christ. We are by nature separated from God, the one who created us and is the source of our real life. And instead of being under the favour of God, we're under the wrath of God, under the anger of God. We are wandering, lost and alone separated from the one that we need the most. Isaiah says sadly in Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. The covenant was broken by Adam, the covenant had. But you know, you and I individually, have offended God by our own personal sins. And his face is turned away from us. And his ears won't listen to our self-justification or our excuses. Paul describes the state of exile that the sinner is in. In Ephesians 2 verse 12 he says, At that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul describes the same thing in a slightly different way in chapter 4, verse 18 of Ephesians when he says that we are alienated from the life of God. We're like that prodigal son in the parable of the Lord Jesus. He was alienated from his father. 
was separated from his family, from his identity, from his roots, from the rituals and the stories of his family, from the joy and the life of the parties and the celebrations, from his true work, from all the relationships, but most of all, alienated from the relationship with his father, who he, he remembered how his father used to embrace him and commend him for, for what he did well. And he missed that, and he came to his senses eventually and said, I'm going to go back to my father. I don't want to be alienated anymore. I want to be in union with God. He wanted to be under the favour again of his father. And that's what being a Christian is. Paul put it even more strongly in Colossians 1 verse 21. He says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Dear friends, it's a very serious thing to be separate from God. You really don't want to be separate from God. Many people talk loosely, particularly at funerals, about their loved ones going to heaven when they die. But the truth is, if you were separate from God in life, you will be separate from God in death. Jesus made that very clear in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, where he says, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. There's a separation, dear friends, in life and in death. And this separation is going to be particularly clear on the day of final judgment. Jesus spoke about the end of time being like. Um, the end of harvest, where the reapers are sent out to collect in the harvest and, and the wheat is separated from the tares or the weeds. Or like, uh, and this has happened to me with animals, you know, the, <clears throat> the goats and the sheep get out and they get all mixed up and they're in the wrong field. And the shepherd has to go in and separate the sheep from the goats. There's a great separation at the end of time on that final day. Perhaps the most alarming thing Jesus ever taught is that it isn't just wicked, terrible, evil people that will be separated from him on that final day. It's good, religious, church-going people also who will be part of the reprobate he said, many who call me Lord, Lord. Well, I've never heard an unchristian call, call God Lord, Lord. These are only religious people that say Lord, Lord. It's, it's those who have prophesied and cast out demons, who have performed miracles in Christ's name, he says. Many of those types of people will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Many and then I will profess to, unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
You see, just being part of a religious group, being part of church, even performing religious services, even to the point of performing miracles, Jesus says. The Jews performed miracles. They cast out devils as well as the disciples. Miracles don't prove you're a Christian. He will say, I never knew you. That's one of the messages of Hebrews, dear friend. We haven't time to go into it today, but because you're part of a church doesn't mean to say you're elect, you're saved. It says in Hebrews 6 about what he talks of those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the good word of God and the powers that come, and even they can fall away. It's frightening how, how close you can be to becoming a true Christian and yet still not be a real Christian. Still not be born again. Yes, there will be a separation on that great day. But the wonderful thing is that, going back to Hebrews 10, the wonderful thing that was symbolised through this Day of Atonement was that the High Priest, once a year, was permitted to enter through the curtain. He could pass beyond the cherubim. And on this day he could offer sacrifices for his own sin first. He would then be ritually washed, purified, and then he would enter into the holiest of holy, holies, holies. The holiest place with the blood of a goat and of a bullock and make atonement for the sins of the people. And because he was a priest, like an electric current, the contact he made with the cloud of God passed to the people. And the people were brought like a circuit back to God. That was how the people were brought to God. And this annual ritual, this symbolic entry into the presence of God, pointed to a far greater reality. Hebrews teaches that the ultimate high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into the actual presence of God, bearing his own blood once for all, not for his sins, but for our sins. And that Jesus, having lived a life of perfect obedience, gained merit as the Saviour and mediator, and becoming a perfect Saviour, kept every part of God's law and won the tree of life for us. Upon the cross he passed through the fiery judgment. He passed through that flaming sword and made a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. Jesus hung upon a tree of judgment to grant us access to the tree of life. He bore the wrath of God in order to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God like a priest. But in order to do that, dear friends, 
In order to deal with the separation we had with God, he had to undergo a separation of his own from his father. For the first time ever, the Son of God was separated from the panem, the presence, the face of his father. For the first time ever, he referred to his father as God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never talked to God as God. He always said, Father. As the modern hymn puts it, I like this hymn. It says, how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You see, the Father turned his face away. Jesus passed through the flaming sword and all our sins were placed on him. And God the Father couldn't look at him. He couldn't look upon that sin. Because his eyes are purer than to behold evil. And he turned his panin, his face away. And Jesus passed through the flaming sword. Paul gloriously describes this in Romans 3.25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And we read in Matthew 27. That at the very moment Jesus died. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus said. At that very moment, the temple curtain, so thick, so wide, so tall, so heavy, the very symbol of our disconnection from God, the embroidered cherubim, standing security against entry to God's presence, was ripped in two. Matthew 27, Behold, the curtain of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. From the top because God was doing the tearing. And Hebrews says that that veil was rent. And that veil was the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as his body was rent and broken, that curtain was torn in two. And thus a new and living way has been consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. A new and living way, dear friends, through the death of Christ, through our Saviour's broken body, Access is now available to God's presence. And there's a new and living way. There's entrance now by the blood of Jesus into the holiest place. That place where only one man once a year could go. We as God's people can dwell in Dwell in Our life now as if we're a Christian, 
is beyond the veil, in the most intimate place, in the holiest place, in the presence of God. That's the gospel, my friends. Christ as high priest has done the work of a priest. He has brought men to God. He has led his people into the presence of God and he continues as a priest, Hebrews says, forever. His contact with the Father is like this electric current to us. He ever lives, Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. He's brought us to God. His name is on his lips. Our names are in the ears of the Father every moment of every day as he bears our names like the priest used to bear the names of the tribes of Israel on their shoulders. Christ bears our names to the Father in everlasting intercession as the high priest who has entered into the living presence of God. Christ, Peter says, has once suffered for sins, sins the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We were sometime far off, Paul says, our name nigh, made near by the blood of Christ. Just as we come to an end, dear friend, just consider this, that we now, and, and if you're not a Christian, this is a, a free invitation to you from God himself. There is access to God. There are no longer cherubim barring your way. There's no temple curtain Stopping you from coming in to the presence of God. There's a new and living way. And we can we think of Esther, don't we? How, how she approached the presence of the king. And anyone who approached the presence of the king without permission would be killed. But the king extended his scepter to Esther. Esther entered into his presence. Because she was under the favour of the king. And if you become a Christian, dear friends, you move from disfavour to favour. You move from the wrath of God to being in his favour, in his presence. You can draw near, Hebrews says, with boldness. Through Christ, Paul says, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. And so, in closing, I want to ask you have you ever entered into this new living way? Have you understood ever that Jesus gave Himself as an offering and as a sacrifice to God, as a sweet smelling savour? Have you ever realised that Jesus bore your sins and it is through Jesus and Jesus only and through faith in him that a man can find his way to God? Jesus said, I am the door, by me. If any man enter in, 
he shall be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the new and the living way. Dear friends, God is calling people to himself all the time. Through the gospel, through preaching, through witnessing, he's calling people to himself. And he freely invites people through the gospel to come into his presence, to be in a relationship with him. And those who come into his salvation, well, Peter says we're all priests now. Each one of us is a priest. Priests unto God. And so this morning, dear friends, don't live your life separate from God. You can come in from the wilderness. You can come out of wrath into favour. You can receive salvation from this one who bore our sins upon the cross. We come to him today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.